Let's listen in as one poor soul tries to find something good to enjoy on the radio. Let's see here. Uh... Oh. Everybody dance, dance. What, you don't like to dance? Everybody dance. Oh. Everybody. God, this is awful. I climbed up the mountain, climbed back down again for you. I climbed up the mountain again for you, and then I climbed back down, climbed up. Oh, isn't there anything, 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 anything? Listening to the radio these days can be distressing. Fortunately, here at CITR, our programmers choose the music that they play, so our charts reflect what people actually listen to. To find out what's really topping the charts, pick up a copy of Beatroot or Discorder magazine, or check us out online at citr.ca. Unless, of course, you'd rather keep listening to the chart-topping single, Everybody Dance. What, you don't like to dance? Everybody dance. Everybody dance. Everybody dance, dance. What, you don't like to dance? (laughs) Whoever said money can't buy you friends obviously wasn't a member at CITR. When you become a member, you get the Friends of CITR card with incredible discounts on Commercial Drive and other areas at Bone Rattle Music Limited, High Life Records, People's Co-op Bookstore, Audio Pile Records, Bad Bird Media, Band Merch Canada, Vancouver Music Gallery, and Pandora's Box Rehearsal Studios. To find out more, visit us in room 233 of the sub on the UBC campus or go online to citr.ca. Did you know that the UBC Bookstore collects food for the AMS Food Bank? If you would like to contribute, please bring your non-perishable food items to the bookstore and drop them off in the box near the front cash area. For more information, check out ams.ubc.ca under services. Are you not sure where to go on campus? Traveling late at night and afraid to go alone? 
Call SafeWalk, a free service where a co-ed team will take you anywhere you need to go on campus. Don't walk alone. For a walk, add SafeWalk to your phone. Call 604-822-5355. That's 604-822-5355. Alternatively, use a UBC Blue phone and ask for SafeWalk. Approach any SafeWalk team or drop by our office on the main floor of the sub across from the gallery lounge. Because you're mine, I walk the line. Hello, it is Wednesday, January 28th, and you're tuned in to The Arts Report. Hello. Welcome, everybody. Yeah, we have, again, a pretty full house today. Uh, It's uh, Jake uh, and Jacob and Jennifer and Christine and Ashley. She'll be here in a moment, and myself, Rohit. So we are all uh, arts reporters slash arts report hosts. And we've got a lot to talk about today. So, Jake, why don't you give, uh, give us a scoop? Well, just a little bit of a rundown. We've got, yeah. we've got some, uh, Christine's giving us a little bit of a review of some PUSH festival activities. Mm-hmm. And last week we were talking about some UBC arts initiatives. There was a play and a movie, and I think we've got reviews on both of those, too. Yeah, and, um, and after that we're going to get into a pretty in-depth discussion, actually, about uh, TransLink. And bus culture here in Vancouver, and per- uh, perhaps the poetry of the riding poetry the bus, of it. yeah, uh, and how it relates to us because the buses everybody likes to complain about, but we also have a lot of things that uh, don't get discussed in, on buses, and uh, we're gonna get into some of that subject matter uh, as well. Uh, we also have a interview uh, with Terry Lynn, is it? Uh, not today. Not today. No, not today. No. But that's coming up. That's yeah. Oh, and it's really exciting. Yeah. So next, so Terry Lynn Carrington is a um, a Juno Award winning uh, jazz drummer, and she's um, well. Well, for next week we'll have an interview with her. We're recording mm-hmm. it later this week. So okay, awesome, yeah, awesome. Really looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah, and as well we'll have our usual roundup of. Uh, arts events here in Vancouver, things that you should check out, things that maybe you want to apply for. Uh, we're going to give you a lowdown on some opportunities that every young aspiring artist um, might be well inclined to try their hand at. So uh, yeah, it's a, a, a couple of call, a call for artists, um, yeah. call for submissions. So that'll be kind of, in, so stay tuned if you want to get the lowdown on the arts in Vancouver this week. <laughs> <laughs> but first things first, let's uh, start off with uh, Christine who will be giving us the lowdown on Push Festival. Yeah. And, and some uh, UBC theater as well, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what, what, did you, what did you see this week? Um, well, last 
Wednesday, actually, I went to go see the Bullet Catch. Um, That's right, and that just opened up. It's at uh, was it at the Stanley? Is uh, the, no, it was no? actually in Granville Island. Oh, performance, yeah. Mm-hmm. The Push Festival has performances all over Vancouver City this year, and for everybody who doesn't know what the Push Festival is, um, just to give you a brief lowdown. It's a three-week festival from January 20th to February 8th, showcasing acclaimed international, Canadian, and local artists in various locations all over Vancouver City. And um, I think it's it's something, there's hundreds of performances in like 20 days or something. Yeah, it's actually insane. And all of those performances are um, contemporary performances, obviously, um, in dance, in music, magic shows, um, theater, so it's really kind of a really multifaceted festival and one of the things I love the most about Push Festival is how it really does give a platform for those performances that are edgy and out of the box that normally wouldn't get that kind of a stage so um, it's one of those festivals that helps kind of push the lines of contemporary art and help it grow and adapt and to our contemporary times So yeah, I guess I'll just start off with a review of The Bullet Catch. Um, The Bullet Catch is a magic show with the premise being exactly what the title assumes. (laughs) Can this man catch a bullet in mid-flight? And is this, so it's a magic show, but is is it also a piece of theater? Is there sort of a narrative along with it more so than... You know, seeing a magician at the PNE or something. Mm-hmm. No, you're totally right. I was I was actually expecting um, a very standard magic show, but as I was watching, I was surprised to see how philosophical mm-hmm. the performance was becoming. Um, there were constant questions of whether or not free will existed, and if not, whether or not you could predetermine and basically guess every single choice that you make up mm. to the future. So the magician um, Rob Drummond, he. Uh, would kind of foresee what your decision would be because of this idea that from the very moment you're born, you there's different factors out of your control that determine what choice you're going to make. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really interesting because aside from the magic that happened during the show and the magic tricks that he did, he made a lot of emphasis on trying to get the audience to think about why you make the choices you make and how those choices are made and kind of manipulating that and seeing how you'll change if like another factor in your social circumstances change. So And so I'm sure this comes up in the play, but is is that something that was successful? Were you sitting there wondering about all the choices that you were making? <laughs> I was definitely sitting there thinking really deeply about this idea and concept of free will and obviously um as he, as he was the magician, his point was that, no, we don't have free will. And basically, me being having the skills that I have, I can p- know beforehand what choices you're going to make mm. and thus do all the tricks that I can do. And so I thought that was really interesting. And to be honest, I mean, I've never seen many magic shows and I'm not a huge fan of magic shows, but I did like the theatrical aspect of it. Mm-hmm. He read out a lot of letters um, Letters of f- famous mu- mu- magicians like Houdini and I've the like. Them, yeah. yeah, so um, that was really good. And um, I think it's one of those um, performances that you should go see if you're not really ready for extremely liberal performances that are really far out there but are looking for something that's comfortably entertaining. So in terms of Push Festival, you're not 
it's it's not um, so far out that it's not inaccessible, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's definitely... It was a good opening, I think, mm-hmm. for the Push Festival, seeing how early on it was. And it definitely did entertain the audience as a whole because there was a lot of audience interaction with the magician. Obviously, in order to do your tricks, you need volunteers and, you know, raised hands. So it's very interactive. And I I guess that point about choice and free will is really interesting because the magician show... Uh, and I've seen I've seen a few in my day at the <laughs> at the PNE <laughs> um, is is that it's all about kind of misdirection and smoke and mirrors, and so um, the magician is kind of preempting where you're going to look or guiding you towards you know focusing your attention on one area. So they're able to slip a trick in into the other area or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And. Surprisingly, exactly like you said, there was a point when he did a trick and afterwards he asked us, asked the audience whether or not they wanted to know how he did it. Hmm. And him showing us how the trick was formed and like how he could make that illusion through really simple means, I think broke down more of that barrier between a traditional magician and the audience. And in that sense, I think it did fit in with the Push Festival mission statement as in they wanted to take those kind of performances that are out of the norm and how did it feel for you as an audience member who presumably had been tricked um to to see how you're tricked did it change your opinion on the um the act of magic that that you saw um just like he said he was like you guys are not going to want to know how this is done um and you're not gonna you're gonna wish that you didn't say you wanted to know. And mm-hmm. he was exactly right. Once he did show me, I think that the magic and the um, kind of um, feeling that I got in when he was doing the trick, seeing how it was done, like was immediately dispelled. Mm-hmm. And his uh, premonition of how the audience would feel, um, I think added to his overall, I guess, statement about free will and yada, yada, yada. So I really liked that, and I thought that because he was very um, open about his entire performance and his interaction with the audience was very honest, I think that was really good. Bullet catch. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And so that uh, um, that was in Granville Island. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. And there's actually a couple other performances that I really want to highlight um, throughout the pre- Push Festival, if you guys have never gone to the Push Festival and are looking, you know, what, do, what am I going to watch? Um, what's kind of cool? So one of the ones that I really want to highlight is called Time Machine. And it's not out yet. It's going to start on February 4th, and mm-hmm. it's going to go on to February 7th. It's going to be at the Scotiabank Dance Theater. And Time Machine features eight children, um, ranging in age from 5 to 13. Hmm. And they're going to be dancing alongside seven professional dancers, so adult dancers. And are these children, are they practicing dancers? Are they learning dance themselves? Or are they children, you know, like... Who don't learn dance, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. I, I believe these dancers, or these children are um, also professional dancers but um, I think it says in the event description the performance description actually that they're trying to contrast the styles between the two groups and the innocent creativity of childhood with the experience of the adult pros who've had a lot more experience in the dancing industry and presumably discipline as well mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. um so I'm really really excited about this and the company that is uh per- that is putting on the performance is called Machine Noisy. 
And this Vancouver-based contemporary dance company um, does a lot of work that is kind of out there. And I've seen a lot of their work in the past. And so that's part of the reason why I'm really excited to see what their feature is going to be in the Push Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, another one that I think is going to be really, really fun to go watch is Steppenwolf. Yes. Yeah, you've heard of it? It's based on the Herman Hesse novel, I, I believe. Mm-hmm, yeah. Not the 70s rock band. No. <laughs> I was thinking that. <laughs> the 70s rock band. Um, no, not at all. Uh, this one is, um, the premise is, you know, you walk into the performance stage and you're seated before a whole bunch of mirrors. And the story begins with the reflection of characters coming up onto the stage. And although I don't know too much about the plotline in it of itself, I've uh, seen through the program description that it's about how, as the story flows, you don't become the audience watching the play, but the play and the characters watching you. Right. This is the performance where you, you're you sitting in front of a mirror and watching yourself watch the performance. Yeah, yeah okay. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Which is a really cool concept and something that I am really excited to go see. That one is also starting later into the Push Festival, so February 4th to 8th it's, as well. It's an interesting dynamic because with live theater, the audience plays a really important role as the audience and the energy that they bring and the attention that they bring will really change a performance from night to night and it seems really cool to be sitting in front of a mirror and watching yourself to place you in the audience in a really immediate way just right in the in the foreground mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i'm really curious as to see how big the um audience or like the setup will be because it's in the russian hall I'm not exactly sure where okay, that is, yeah. but if it is a pretty small ven- venue, then it would make sense that the audience, um, there's only like a limited amount of seats. Um, but if the audience, if like the venue is pretty big, I'm, it's going to be kind of hard to see how they'll be able to manipulate the mirror so that each audience member will be able to see themselves right. and get that same experience. So yeah. that's going to be interesting. Cool. Mm, And I guess the other two performances that I want to highlight as well is um, mainly because I got to do a email interview with the individuals who are going to be um, doing the performance. So the first performance that I'm highlighting is Sonic Elder, and I got to talk with uh, one of the musicians. So Sonic Elder is going to be a band of six Vancouver music legends, and one of those musicians is Carlos Joe Costa. And he has a really, really um, outstanding, I guess, musical resume. Um, And he'll be performing um, music hits from the 50s and 60s. Um, When I was doing the interview with him, I really liked what he said when I asked him, what tips and life lessons would you give to a struggling musician in Mm -hmm. Vancouver? Um, Trying to get their name known. And what he said was, quote, I never cared for the term struggling artist. I was surrounded by so many musical friends who lived the struggling lifestyle as a musician. I've always considered myself a part-time pro and always had a job as a safety net. My tip would be to express your art without struggle and to pace your career so that you can enjoy playing and performing until you exhale your last breath. Wow, a much, much stronger message than the typical don't give up and, you know... (laughs) 
keep your nose down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked his honesty, and he has a really um, kind of bright personality that I'm really happy to see that even in his um, aged career, he hasn't lost, you know, mm-hmm. his initial vigor and love for what he does. Um, and when when can people see this performance? Um, you will have to go on the website okay. to search that one up. Um, and another performance, like the final one that I want to highlight is called Eating the Game. And right, yes. Yes, and for this one, it's going to be... Per- it's put on by a group called Hong Kong Exile. So I got to talk to um, the keynote speaker of Eating the Game, Connor Wiley, as well as the artistic director, Milton Lim. Um, so basically what this performance is going to be is um, just a discussion on just a discussion on two worlds. So from the performance description, it says the contrast between Vancouver and China, West and East, business and culture, ethics and desire. So I'm guessing that it's just going to be a really interactive speech, um, kind of exploring the issues that the collide between two different worlds can bring. Um, and it's going to be preceded by a performance uh, called Lang Languages, which is a interactive kind of piano performance mm-hmm. um, by a very well-known uh, pianist. Um, and one of the questions that I asked both Milton and Connor um, during my email interview was what they thought um, the Push Festival was and how it was differentiated from other festivals that Vancouver hosts, like the Fringe Festival, etc. Because being Vancouver, there's so many things going on all the time. And Milton said that um, PUSH is an international festival recognized globally. There are a few other places on the West Coast to see leading work from around the world. PUSH festival shows are also curated rather than being picked up by submissions or or by lottery. So that's a good tidbit to know about what differentiates the PUSH festival from other festivals. And then Connor said that he thinks PUSH is really fearless and quite groundbreaking in the work it curates. We get to see shows that imagine new forms and ways of engaging. There's stuff that walk the line between genres and disciplines, like the work of the Gob Squad, and then there's other stuff that is straight up in your face and confrontational. So that's all to say, um, for those of you who are on the fence about wanting to go to the Push Festival and what performances to see, to really just go out there and Take a look at some of the performances because you're definitely going to be surprised and delighted by what you find. Right on. Well, thanks very much for all your reporting on the Push Festival. And I know that you've got a little bit more to share with us, too, a little bit closer home uh, at UBC. Mm-hmm. So recently I had a full week of just going to see new UBC theater um, plays and performances. So the two that I talked about last week was the Bakai and the feature-length film Mercury Falling. Yes, and there's posters around ta- or well around campus for both of them, and they're very interesting-looking posters. Mm-hmm. They are very interesting-looking posters, and both of them kind of back-to-back really emphasized how much UBC Theatre is changing and growing as an organization and pushing, I guess, the boundaries. Similarly, like 
how the push festival is Mm -hmm. to what is the norm and trying to develop more develop more contemporary art um so the bakai uh when i went to go watch it i found was really really striking (laughs) all right well Hi guys, I'm on air two. This is Ashley. Just came in, and, and you you saw the Bakai as well. Yeah, is that I saw right? it, the Bakai 2.1. It's much more different than the original. Do you, have you seen the original Bakai or no? No, no, I haven't. Okay, so in the original, it's it's based from a Greek uh, myth. So a classic a Greek classic play by Greek um, play by Euripides. Euripides. That's right. So the way they changed it, I know you said it was really like um like striking in a way. Yeah, um, initially because once you uh, sit down as the audience. The set itself is really striking. Like I set, mentioned before, that it's completely white. But um, the beginning of the play is Dionysus in this extravagant Christ costume and getup, really and cool. he did. And he had this kind of sun halo around his head. And when he moved from place to place in the set it literally looked as if he was floating really? from place yeah. to place. And that really caught your attention because, A, that's not humanly possible. And, B, his the colors and the contrast between the white and his um, costume was really, really strong. So I liked how they utilized the white stage to bring out um, different features of the costume, but also how they use the lighting. So because it's white, the shadows that appeared on the set as well as the walls of the theater and the venue was really eye-catching, and it really caught your attention. Um, Surprisingly, with this play, there is a lot of dance to it. Mm -hmm. And because there's a lot of dance... Um, the rhythmic, I guess, shadows that appear on the walls and the set really entrance you, along with the live music with um, cymbals and... Yeah, even like a violin happening. A lot of music happens in the play. Uh, people are quite surprised and they hear the music, they think it's a recording, but actual castmates are playing the music there. It was a live performance There were some music. live performances, yeah. Now, I know that classical Greek plays would have um, sort of a chorus, um, a member, like a group of people who yeah. would kind of propel the story and they would kind of um, walk the line between narrator and and characters in the play and commentators they would comment on what's going on is this uh, how did the Bakai kind of interpret that for this production I would say that the uh, group of girls who or women I should say who flee to the mountains um, to kind of worship the god Dionysus and live their own life apart from society um, acted like that chorus because they were present in almost the entire play. There, w- there really wasn't a scene where at least like five or six of them w- weren't just kind of like moving around backstage. Um, in terms of the lines and the narration that they um, had for the play as a whole, it wasn't qu- too strong. Like they didn't talk mm-hmm. as much, but they did give facial expressions that cued the audience as to how we should be reacting to some of the things that were being said on stage. Um, I really think that in terms of the visual, I guess, um, attraction of what was going on, it was really strong, but I think that the plot of the story could have been more emphasized. Um, from what I've seen, since I've seen the original one and I've now seen this one, the adaptation that I believe it was Charles Mee. Yeah, Charles Mee. That's right. The one that he did, um, there's a lot of, um, I guess, for uh, lack of a better word, a lot of controversy with his kind of uh, choices in 
the speech that people do, which makes it very kind of uh, difficult for audiences such as yourself to get lost in what the original plot is. Mm -hmm. I already have the underlying knowledge of what's happening is happening. So I can follow the story. But for other people, they seemed a little bit confused on what was going on because they were focusing too much on what the characters were saying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I do have to emphasize that I don't think it was the uh, performers themselves that were limiting the communication of the plot. I do think that it was, I guess, the lengthy monologues that a lot of the characters had. That being said, I think... um, Specifically, the actor Matt Kennedy, who played one of the main characters, Pantheus, um, his performance for about, I think, half an hour to 40 minutes straight just talking and almost shouting out his lines was was incredible to see. I was so shocked as to see how... um, invested he was and comfortable he was in the role he was playing even though it was a pretty intense character and it's hard to maintain um, that level of focus for that period of time so I was pleasantly surprised Um, so struggling with that kind of difficult script and that kind of adaptation I would say props to the the performers um, for really doing the best with what they were given. And part of part of those lengthy bits of dialogue too is a, a modern audience isn't as practiced at, at listening to dialogue in that format. Um, but one of the things that definitely would have been striking about this play is you talked a lot about how um, the art direction in it was very kind of risque and, um, and in your face a little bit. Um, did that kind of bring the audience's attention um, towards the play? Um, Surprisingly, I did mention that it was quite a liberal play with a lot of vulgar and sensual content. Um, But none of it was too bad in the sense that I... um, It lost from the message of the play or lost from what the characters were saying. Um, So you you wouldn't have minded watching the play with your grandmother or, or something like that? Yeah, no, really. I was watching it and it wasn't to the extent that I might have made it seem out last week. Mm-hmm. Um, now, having gone seen the play and running through the um, play as a whole, I don't think that it was as um, bad as <laughs> um, some people might uh, come to expect. Excellent. Right on. Any any final thoughts about the Bakai? Um, well, my friend who I went to go see the Bakai with, um, she did say that it was one of the coolest plays that she's seen yet at UBC. And I've taken her to see almost every single UBC theater play since I became a theater correspondent. So um, for her to say that is a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. And I think in terms of how UBC theater is taking on such challenging plays such as the Bakai and making it into something that is entertaining by utilizing things other than just character development, like set, like um, live music, like dancing. I think that that's really commendable. Excellent. I think for people who are going to see the Bakai 2.1, one thing that they should be really open about is even though at first the shock value might go, what are they saying? Don't really focus on what they're saying, but what the message underlying those words mean. Because I feel like people can get too wrapped up in it. And I heard some people behind me going, what are they saying? This makes no sense. Mm -hmm. But there's an underlying theme to all of it. 
in which the direction does kind of show, even if you're lost in the plot, you can still see where the character development is going, especially with the main character, Pentheus, and his issues that are very kind of clear for everyone to see. So I really recommend people giving it a chance, at least, and having an open mind. Because if you have an open mind, you'll really come to enjoy this play and what it offers. That's a really good point, because I also felt very similar um, near kind of the middle of the play when the monologues were getting quite lengthy. But because I kept an open mind till the end of it, I think when the climax comes, when the... Um, all of the loose ends of the uh, play come to a finale, I think it really does click. Um, and they make the final scene of the play really strong so that even if you weren't really aware of exactly what was going on in the beginning or the middle of the play, it comes to be really clear at the very end. So, yeah. Well, thank you for covering the Bakai. Yes, and along with the Bakai, there's um, the second show that I went to go see, actually on Monday. So not yesterday, but the night before. And that was UBC Theater's very first feature-length film, um, Mercury Falling. And this is different here, because so far UBC Theater is, it hasn't been a theater and film department, is that right? This is its uh, a groundbreaking venture for them? Yeah, um, originally they did for theater productions every season, but for the first time, they're doing three theater productions and one feature-length film, um, which is another reason why I'm loving the changes that are happen happening to UBC Theater, because getting to see the actors that um, I've seen on stage for so long on the big screen mm -hmm. is really, really cool. And the opening screening night that happened on Monday after the entire show was shot, we had a little bit of a Q&A with the actors and the directors um, of Mercury Falling. And a lot of the theater actors said it was a cool experience being able to see how different it is and how different you have to act in front of a camera than in front of an audience. Like, A, you're not supposed to move around as much um, in front of the camera. you got to stay still and be very mindful about um, every kind of action that you do because you are so close up. It is an interesting difference, too. And, and if you see in Hollywood, sometimes you can point out, you, you might be able to see which actors were trained to the stage and what were trained, who was trained in front of a camera. But it's there's definitely a different acting style. And, you know, when you're on the theater, you've got to cheat out towards the audience. And um, you're in some ways much more nuanced. Um, but on film, too, you can capture just the smallest details and, and you can take as many takes as you like, too. Mm -hmm, that's very true. Um, and surprisingly, with the many takes as you can do, because this is a naked theater production, there were certain rules that the director um, announced beforehand that throughout the entire shooting of the film, they abided by. So some of the rules were like no tripods and stabling mechanisms can be used. Mm. So all of the scenes that you were getting to see were really um, like handheld devices. And so I think that's a pretty big um, accomplishment. And the second was, was that there, all of the shots that they took were one-shotters. So it was never one scene, but you would get to s cut to different angles. Right. It was one shot. And for one of the scenes where the main, sort of the main character, so one of the characters is picking up um, three different girls, it all had to be done in succession of one shot. So the um, coordination between all of the actors from place to place needed to be very, very precise. 
And I think there were a whole bunch of other rules that um, the director emphasized before the screening of the play, but getting to um, see how they adapted because of the res- those rules and how it kind of highlighted more authenticity of the film itself um, was really, really cool. And I thought was something that they should definitely continue to do because it differentiates Mercury Falling as just a low-budget university film to a university film that has purposely put on these restrictions to how they're going to be filming the movie um, so that they can highlight different aspects of um, the film itself. Especially for a theater department, too. It's It seems to be in the hybrid category between theater and, and film. That's very true. Um, I loved how funny the Mercury the uh, Mercury falling as a plot was, and I know that there wasn't too much plot description on um, social media about what the film is about. So just so everybody knows, Mercury Fal- Mercury falling is about um, the opening of a bar by um, oh I forgot I forget the main character's name, um, but it's about the opening of a bar and how different people within the city. Um, come together within this bar and kind of uh, have their stories and have their lives collide and interact with each other within this one setting. So um, it's definitely a comedy, I would say, for everybody who's um, wondering what kind of feeling they're going to get when they're coming to watch the film. So, yeah. And where can um, where can people find out and where can people see Mercury Falling? Is it at the Norm? The, is it at the Norm? Yeah, it was at the Norm Theatre um, on Monday and Tuesday, 7.30 p.m. But uh, And tickets were $10, but now there, I don't think there are any more screenings at the Norm Theatre. But everybody should stay posted on whether or not they'll uh, release the film on some other website um, where you can stream it online. So um, for people who do still want to see the film, just keep an eye out on the UBC Theatre and Film Department website. Excellent. Well, thanks very much for telling us about Mercury Falling. All right. Welcome. Ha- welcome back to the Art Support. You are tuned into CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver, and we're broadcasting to you live from, <laughs> from UBC. That's so smooth, Jake. It just rolls and you sounded like one of those auctioneers for a moment there. <laughs> yeah, long, maybe long I got a future word. in... <laughs> in, <laughs> in auctioneering? <laughs> okay, now, how, how did you guys get to the station today? Uh, yes. The bus... I took the 99. Bus all the I way? The 99. 99. 99. 49. 99. 49. How about you, Ashley? Oh, 99. I'm sorry, Rudy. Nah, I was 99 as well. That's. Uh, oh, my goodness. Uh, four, nine, odd man out. 80, 80% <laughs> what did you guys all do on the bus? Let's see. Well, uh, this is great because nobody knows. No one remembers <laughs> anything that they I'm one of those bus. people that ever since I got a smartphone and I'm able to, uh, you know, 
just tune out everybody and everything that's in my vicinity. I used to shun. I used to look at those people and be like, oh, those sheeple, <laughs> sheeple, absolute sheeple. Just looking at them corporate tools, looking at their tiny screens, and and then I became one of them because the power of a, a smartphone is immense. I mean, I I just loaded up with um, this American Life podcast. <laughs> And Radio Lab podcast and another podcast. Uh, actually, not Serial. I used to do that <laughs> when it was, it was a great first season. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I also had, yeah, I basically had three podcasts up in there, and I was just tuning into those. Um, yeah. I'm the same way, too. Um, but every once in a while, something extraordinary does seem to happen. I think something happened to my friend Jen the other day. Something did happen. I wouldn't call it extraordinary, but I would call it something. And it did make me think about the peculiarities of the bus and bus culture itself and kind of how people try to get on the bus and take the path of least resistance until they get to their destination, such as Rohit over here, (laughs) playing on his phone, trying to ignore reality until he gets back to the normality of his everyday life. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to share with you guys this bus story and hopefully it'll shed some light on the... The weird thing that is the bus and transportation in Vancouver and in the world. Um, So I was riding on the 99 last week and it was a normal ride just on my way to school. And it was kind of crowded, but not the worst situation. I was standing next to this one guy, a kind of rougher looking dude, wasn't looking like he had the best day. And he proceeded to touch my butt, which I wasn't very okay with. So a verbal just... just, was it a grip? Was it a touch? It was kind if of. If you a, guys can see what's going on, we're just <laughs> we're just working with our hands to see how much of a touch it was. I would describe it as an undercup. Oh, an oh. Undercup. Yes. straight up. Uh, so I started to uh, verbally dispute with him. Lots of swear words were exchanged. My arms were gesturing vividly, and I looked like some sort of bird. Um, <laughs> But what surprised me the most is not this verbal dispute that I was having, because those seem to happen a lot to me on the 99. (laughs) But what surprised me the most was that there was actually another guy standing next to me, just a regular guy, looked like he was on his way to work, had like a briefcase. And he actually gave me the shushing sign and just kind of insinuated that I should leave it. Just leave the problem, get on with your day, take the path of least resistance on the bus. Mm and move on until you get to your destination and then you can forget about this stage in your life. How did you feel about that at first? At first, I was really angry. Uh, more angry at the shusher than I initially was at the, um, <laughs> at the butt cover. Not only was he a bystander who wasn't um, well, not doing anything for the situation, he was then putting it onto you to change your behavior. That's what he was telling you. He was basically you. blaming you for the entire problem, which should have been the guy who inappropriately touched you. Oh, See, nice uh, one of, one yeah. of my theories that I came up with was, yes, that I think that would be um, the most obvious thing, that he doesn't want conflict mm-hmm. and that he does want the situation to just kind of uh, fold over. But um, maybe, and I, call me crazy, but maybe he was trying to show that he was emotionally mature in some way. Tell this guy, tell you, hey, let's, you know, this guy's not going to respond to us like we want him to. So let's both just calm down. And in that way, maybe he was trying to hit on you a little bit. <laughs> oh, oh, God. Really? Stacking in a horrible direction. Stacking up the sins here. <laughs> it's maybe, maybe. I don't know. How I interpreted it after <laughs> an extreme over analysis is that the bus is this very strange in between stage where. 
in one way or another, individuals are trying to get through it without any conflict, without having to even realize that they're almost on the bus and just get to their destination and start living their life again. Therefore, the bus is in some sense um, what anthropologists like to call a liminal stage, um, which is it occurs in the middle stage of a ritual. So it's when participants no longer hold on to their pre-ritual status, but have not yet to uh, begun the transition into the status they will hold when the ritual is completed. So in this example, the ritual being the bus, it's our method of transportation, exactly. and we can all relate to it. You, see, mm -hmm. you get on the bus, you're there to move to a different part of the city, and you're just in your kind of... You don't want trouble. Exactly. Exactly. Limbo stage, I would... Uh, yeah. Most definitely. One of, the, one of the cool things on Vancouver Transit, actually, that we are privileged to... Um, is this project that's called Poetry in Transit. It started in 1996, and uh, I'm just going to read from the Association of Book Publishers of British Columbia's website. Um, in partnership with TransLink, the ABPBC produces a collection of poetry car cards and transit shelter ads each year, which feature the work of BC-authored and Canadian-published poets. So I'm sure everyone who's taken the bus has probably seen these. They're pretty awesome. I'm going to read a quick poem here by Derek Wynand from the book Past Imperfect, Present Tense, and from the collection Musicians on a Bus, and I think it ties in nicely with what we were talking about here. But, um, yeah, here it goes. What trick of light has turned everyone's hair suddenly gray? Is this blitzkrieg or siege? Here and there a handkerchief appears, not in surrender, but only to wipe sweat from a brow, blow a nose, provide a diversion for the eyes. The palm trees go by, the houses go by, cars go by in both directions. On the planet's other side, the light of dead stars must be firing up the imagination of insomniacs. In the jungle passing outside, monkeys must be howling, parrots making a better music. Inside, the musician's fierce glare tracks his own silence above the vast space of his outstretched hand. And so this, this was a poem on the poetry in transit. This was on the bus. It was on the bus, and you can picture this poet sitting there, um, frustrated at first with everyone who I mean like Rohit and like myself and like probably everyone on the bus all the time is listening to headphones um, you know not talking to anyone scared to talk to anyone maybe um, and not even looking at anyone I actually had the psychology professor who uh, who was very interested in studying people's where people look on the bus studying eye contact because if you've ever noticed um, <laughs> at least I do this myself it's almost as if you're doing everything you can to avoid looking at someone in the eye. It's like this terrible error to make, <laughs> you know. So. It's it's rare that uh, I I remember this one time when I, I well, for whatever reason I was sitting on the bus and then thinking about being in that space and sitting on the bus and I did look around and I noticed everybody and it was a very particularly busy time. It would have been between four and before and six or something like that on the ninety nine again. Mm. And we were in the back and. Um, the bus was full. I noticed that there was this one guy sitting across from me, and he was an older guy in his, well, not old, like he was in his 40s or, or whatever, and just coming off work. I think he was wearing a suit and tie. And he had earphones in, and he was singing along to, it looked like he was crooning, like he was singing Frank Sinatra or something like that. <laughs> cool. and I couldn't hear it, but he was mouthing every word, and his face was in it too. He was fully present in his headphones at the moment. Mm -hmm. and And I can remember it so vividly right beside him was, um, a, a young girl in her late teens, early twenties, who was every piece of her was was um, a different shade of pink, but not bright bubblegum pink, sort of tan or sandy or strawberry. Her skin, she was very pink cheeks and you know a pink suit and everything, and she was just an interesting character. And 
And at one point, because it was late in the day, there was somebody yawned, and I don't know who it was, <laughs> and no one was looking around, but you could see the yawn jump from people to people all across <laughs> the bus. Because, yeah, and that was that was my <laughs> liminal bus experience looking at. I have a me. question to ask people. I mean, I wonder if this is me just being hyper self-conscious at times, but do you ever... Like, you know, when people are coming down to sit and there's like spaces and they're starting to fill up next to you and there's still like those in-between spaces, like there's one next to you, but they, they could go somewhere else. And, you know, I make sure to move my backpack and something, put it to the side. And when somebody walks by and I did that and then they just don't sit next to me, I actually get offended every time yeah, that yeah. like... Are you sitting on the aisle seat in those situations? Yeah, the, like one of the aisle seats. Yeah, I think you're sending confusing messages here to people. <laughs> because, oh, no, I'm serious. Often I get on and um, sometimes I'll see someone sitting on the aisle seat and I yeah, think yeah. that's they're communicating to me that they don't want me to sit by them. I, then again, though, if you are moving the backpack in plain sight for them to see, yeah, it yeah, does yeah. seem like an invitation kind of, right? That's what I would think. I mean, okay, I'll admit, like, sometimes, like, you know, if it's especially if it's, like, a pretty girl, I'll be like, I'll, I'll admit, like, I'm even more, uh, more active in moving that backpack and being, like, extra... I don't want to say chivalrous. It's not that chivalrous <laughs> at all. It's just basic manners. But I feel like in my head, for some, I'm just telling you the stupid thoughts that are going through my head. I'm like, yes, I'll be the gentleman. I'll move this backpack that'll inconvenience the, the high lady. <laughs> like, like. But to, to take it on a like, meta level, yeah. the fact that you are just moving your backpack and not even engaging in conversation with the person saying, oh, this seat's open if you want it, shows kind of the weird yeah. peculiarities of the bus that we don't, want to talk to each other so we do all these weird kind of mannerisms and <laughs> we're just expecting people yeah, to get it <laughs> expecting people to understand this weird bus culture as it is especially because in in that scenario of wanting to you know like wanting to offer that seat and someone to sit there that's all that would happen it would be like yeah that's all that would like, happen yeah they want to sit beside me <laughs> and then you don't talk and then you get I draw some satisfaction from that I, I must yeah. admit in the, in the spirit of uh, all these silly human things that we do here's another poem by Jane Monroe from the book Blue Sonoma and Old Man Vacans is the t- Vacanus, sorry, is the title. I probably said that wrong. Sorry, Jane. The old man takes his choppers out when chicken sticks to them. He parks them in a glass of blue fizz. DNA from fossil bones tells us we're siblings to Neanderthals. And the small arrangements we make, language, travel, art, props in a little local theater of light. That one, I, when you started reading it, I said in my head, I'm thinking, I recognize this <laughs> poem, and it's from the bus. I, I read that one day on the bus. And I it. <laughs> right on. Yeah, it's a funny one. Um, I mean, it, it really, all these uh, ridiculous things that we're talking about, it kind of, uh, I think this poem takes you out a bit. You picture this, uh, you know, these dentures sitting in a glass, and it's a really grotesque sight. And uh, to relate that to um, to Neanderthals and where we've come from and all these uh, these weird things that we do, you kind of forget that we did just come from there. And, uh, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this. but I was going to say, though, do you wonder if bus culture is the same 
everywhere. I mean, like Vancouver, is this like a particularly unique thing to Vancouver? Or uh, maybe Jen or Jacob, if you guys did a little bit of research on it, especially from an anthropological perspective, I wonder, do do different cultures nowadays have different bus mannerisms, bus routines? Is it maybe more permissible to talk to strangers in other places? Yeah, for sure. Um, this comes more from personal experience rather than anthropological field work. However, Fair enough. Um, <laughs> when I was traveling throughout Mexico, I took a lot of local buses and yeah. a lot of them were either big trucks that you just went in the back of or they were like <laughs> big buses. So you're very close to your neighbors, but it's in a very comfortable setting and everyone is extremely talkative. Um, people are a lot more respectful. Um, people, I find that people in Vancouver are respectful in the fact that they give you know, older people or people who seem like they need to see places to sit. But in when I was in Mexico, it was a given. If you didn't do that, people did not understand what was going on in your mind. And people were a lot more social. Um, yeah, and I think it's just not even that it's a different bus culture, but it's just hmm. a different country and just a different culture. Bus, right? Yeah, I, I once took a bus ride in Mexico where the guy sitting next to me had a bunch of live chickens that he was taking and he was holding four live chickens at once and it was very difficult for <laughs> oh. him. So I spent the two hour bus ride holding the necks of two of his chickens. <laughs> so that kind of paints a picture of the obvious differences yeah. in Vancouver's transit and transit around the world. Um, and I feel like those are differences between kind of Western culture and kind of our more technological facilitated buses than they in, have in, in other places. In that example where the the community atmosphere extends itself to the bus, do you think it continues to be that liminal space or does it is it more an extension of the community space? Yeah, I completely agree with you. It's more of an extension of a community space because the bus isn't something that people dread and have to go through to get on with their day. The bus mm -hmm. is actually part of their day. It's not just leaving your normal life it's actually just still being in your normal life and the bus is still a part of that um rather than this weird kind of unstated understanding in vancouver's bus system for example where it's kind of this understanding that we don't openly go and talk to one another or stuff like that they don't really ha they didn't really have that in my experience when i was uh, traveling around mexico i tried to i remember uh, jen and i last year uh, we were in mexico with some friends and I came back from holidays, and I was all, you know, feeling like how you feel when you come back from holidays, really energized and enthusiastic and optimistic. Um, <laughs> and, in that, yeah, and in that time, now I'm totally not. <laughs> and in that time, I remember um, I, I told myself, I'm going to try and talk to people on the bus. Not just pretty girls, but everyone, too. I'd, you know, I'd, I'd, <laughs> everyone, too. I'd, I'd talk. Equal uh, opportunity. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it, people, I mean, the people I talked to, maybe it was just me, but people really don't like to be talked to is what I found. Um, you know, I mean, often you're kind of, you have to poke someone to get their attention and they take their headphones off. But um, mm. it is this weird, it is this weird time of day because we do take it, I mean, how often do you take the bus? At least two hours a day, maybe, on average. The average person yeah. travels, not even necessarily just the bus, but being in transit in general, where mm -hmm. we are kind of plugged out, tuning out. I had a creative writing teacher who, was obsessed with that time period in the day because he said, you know, everyone, everyone's totally blacking out during it. There's so much going on, and you're forgetting a really big portion of your life if you are blacking out during this time. Um, I'm going to read another poem here. This one is by Elise Partridge from the book Chameleon Hours. 
The poem's called Prognosis 50-50. To ride as hard at life as that 10-year-old girl galloping flat over the, out over the prairie. Because that's how hard death is thundering at you. His knuckles white on the black pummel. Too late, you'll see. The east gate has been shut. Spurs glitter on his needle-toed boots. Now, if I was on the bus and I saw that, I'd kind of be bummed out because it's telling you <laughs> death is coming at you so hard and that you should live your life. And I'm yeah. sitting there on the bus. It's a very like, exist- me out. I want to live. It's like a grand epic <laughs> existentialist uh, poem, which I, I find like if I read that on the bus, I'd be like, wow, what is what my what is my life? If yeah, you'd be one. But maybe that's the whole point of it. It's kind of like. Why not think of grand things while you're on the bus? Why, why why do we have to like resort to like distracting ourselves from the fact we're on a bus? Like maybe just confronting. Like I wonder if that is like just confronting your reality at that situation. You are on a bus. Yes, you are doing something mundane and trivial. But why not still have like those amazing thoughts? Those that kind of like you could still let your imagination run wild, and maybe sure. have have some fun with that. I mean. Like how, like why do we feel this reliance to have to plug into something just to justify uh, that, right? Like why can't we just literally be in our imagination, our, in our own headspace? If anything, you could use this moment to like really be introspective, be very uh, meditative, even. But yeah. but we don't. I uh, feel like um, that mindset is the necessary way of thinking in order to take this from a liminal space into more of a community space. So not a space of in betweenness, but an actual space of like oh, this is still a part of my life. It's not just <laughs> something I'm enduring to get to school or work. It's actually something that I can take advantage of. And Would you want that, though? I don't know. Sometimes I get on the bus, too. I mean, with all this that we're saying, sometimes I would yeah. get on and I just want to sit there and totally black out. For sure. I think, yeah. I guess having the choice is a big, big part yeah. of that. Yeah, you're right. But I like what you said about um, our inability almost to sit and do nothing now. Like, you can't just sit and, and stare at something. You, can't <laughs> just, you, ever, you ever do this? You ever take out your phone and... Um, when you're feeling particularly anxious for whatever reason, or not even, just when you take, you ever take out your phone and just kind of scroll through the sides without having anything to do on the phone, just like without absolutely. Even that's what that's you're something doing. I've only done because I got a smartphone. Isn't that like crazy? you I wouldn't do that otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> you just you just wouldn't do that. When I had like a like a really crappy Nokia phone, I you couldn't do that. No. So I I would just I would either listen to music, but then sometimes I would just not have any anything playing. I would just literally people watch or <laughs> I don't know or just yeah. So that's I, well. Thank you guys for having like these ins- very inspirational poems. What do you want to have any last words on bus culture and uh, and poetry in transit? Maybe close it with uh, with a poem here. Sure. Okay, so this sure. one's by Rachel Rose. It's from the book Song and Spectacle, and from the collection Uncut Wood. Mortgage, mortgage scolds the Stellar's Jay as I put the breakfast bowls away. It's easy to get lost along the way. This morning, plum blossom form flowed through my hands, and from the net of heaven, rain fell on old snow. The baby chewed his mysterious toes, content with a single tooth. Lao Tzu, old carpenter, tell me the truth. What's the difference between want for nothing and good for nothing? What we love can always be taken. Mm, beautiful. <laughs> beautiful words in transit. Thank you for, uh, thanks for that report on poetry on the bus. Thank no you. Worries. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. <laughs> now, uh, before we go, we should just mention quickly a couple of things. Um, we can, if we all get a screen, I guess we could blitz together through some <laughs> of the things going on. 
we've just go got for it, yeah. Cool things going on here. Um, first, there's two call for submissions. One is called "23 Days at Sea," and it's Access Gallery in partnership with Berard Arts Foundation. Um, and it's a call for submission. It's a call for, well, yeah, to you can apply to be an, an artist in residence on a container ship traveling from <laughs> Vancouver wow, to Hong Kong. That's so something. Adventure. Yeah, and um, so the proposal and all that information is available online. Just look up 23 Days at Sea and Access Gallery. And the other call for artists is Ruby Slippers. Um, and Ruby Slippers Theatre, in partnership with the Vancouver Fringe Festival, Festival and Equity Theatre, proudly presents Advanced Theatre New Works by Women. Um, the idea is that only 33% of theater is, uh, or only 33% of artistic directors are women, 34% um, are working directors, and tw- only 20% are produced um, playwrights, oh, women wow. are produced playwrights. So the idea is um, to get more women involved in theater and um, send your script submissions to info at rubyslippers.ca by February 15th if you are um, interested in producing some, well, if you're a woman and interested in <laughs> producing some plays. Also, we've got just a few shows on today. Um, well, for this week, Arts Club Theatre presents One Man, Two Governors. It's um, a, just a funny slapstick British play at, um, at the Stanley until February 22nd. I don't know if anyone else has any of this information, but does anyone want to tell us about Rio Theatre Crazy Eights? <laughs> well, Rio Theatre Crazy Eights is celebrating its 16th birthday. I know, guys. Crazy Eights is an eight-day filmmaking challenge that provides funding and support to emerging filmmakers to help them produce a short film. So it's, Crazy Eights is definitely run by the Crazy Eights Film Society, no duh. And it's a non-for-profit society. So it's created for foster support for emerging film, uh, filmmakers who have little or no access to funding for short films. So the doors and receptions are at 6, screenings of classic short films at 8, tickets are $8 in advance, and there's a sliding scale of 10 to 16 at the door. So come out and party like crazy and support local filmmakers. Um, I'm also going to talk about Spark Forward 2015, which is a combo festival, conference, and job fair. Spark Forward isn't just for those already involved in the visual effects and digital media industries. With a wide selection of film screenings and talks, Spark Forward offers something for students, film buffs, art lovers, and cartoon fans as well. Spark Forward 2015 Festival, Conference, and Job Fair showcases state-of-the-art, award-winning visual effects and digital media. Featuring industry speakers from films such as Paddington, The Hobbit, Birdman, and Interstellar. So this is the 30th anniversary celebration of Back to the Future and a premiere of the young and prodigious T. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, Spivet as well, which is going to be in 3D. So this is from January 29th to 31st, and it's at the Van City Theatre, which is on 1181 Seymour Street. Conference tickets are 20 bucks. Film screenings are $11. And remember that there is a free job fair. Uh, Friday, January 30th, 30th, we have the Holy Rosary Cathedral presenting Christian Lane in concert. Um, that, 2000, sorry, Christian Lane is a 2011 international organ comp, <laughs> I screwed that up terribly. There's a 2011 international organ competition, first prize winner, and that is Christian Lane. By the age of 21, he'd already earned first place in four major American organ competitions. 
He'll be playing a program which